Chapter 19, Part 1 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria James, Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie, Chapter 19, Part 1. The National Balance Sheet. The chapter begins with a quote. A national debt is vicious in principle, deceitful in its effects upon the state which borrows, hurtful to posterity which must pay, and tending to lead rulers into useless wars and extravagant expenditure of public money. Close quote. Thomas Spencer. National debts grow troublesome. Year after year, the burden they lay upon the productive energies of nations becomes harder and harder to bear. The twelve years between 1870 and 1882 have eclipsed all others in the amounts added to the already sorely burdened masses of Europe. Russia has saddled herself with one billion three hundred sixty-five million dollars, two hundred seventy-three million pounds more debt in these short twelve years, an average increase of nearly one hundred fifteen million dollars, twenty-three million pounds per annum, a load fit to weigh an empire down. France's obligations have swollen to two billion two hundred fifteen million dollars four hundred forty three million pounds, and even Spain must be in the fashion and add five hundred twenty five million dollars one hundred five million pounds. And Italy, not to be behind in this mad race, has contracted seven hundred forty million dollars one hundred forty eight million pounds more. And even poor, decaying Turkey has found credulous capitalists to lend her $90 million, $18 million pounds, during this period. The aggregate of these obligations in Europe has increased, since 1848, from $14,940,000,000 pounds, to $20,935,000,000 pounds. Four billion one hundred eighty-seven million pounds, and most of this increase has been consumed in wars, which have left matters much as they were or would have been, if never waged. Such is the inevitable result of anti-democratic rule. Britain alone, let us record it to her credit, is the only power which has resolutely reduced her debt. It is less by four hundred sixty-five million dollars, ninety-three million pounds in 1884 than it was in 1857, while her wealth has enormously increased. It is easy to meet deficits by the proceeds of new loans, but it were well that nations should be of opinion with the Chinese laundrymen of New York, who refused to give a note bearing interest. Quote, no noty, said our heathen Chinese, noty walkie, walkie, Ollie, tiny, walkie, no, sleepy. Close quote. Nations forget this peculiarity of new issues. Sleeping or waking, the load of interest swells noiselessly on Saturdays and Sundays alike. The Republic emulates her mother's example and cuts down her debt with unexampled rapidity. It is a curious fact that these, the two English-speaking nations, should be the only ones who resolutely set their faces strongly in the debt-discharging direction. The other races appear content to borrow as long as they can, and let the future take care of itself. We are not without ominous signs that in some instances the strain upon their resources cannot be increased further without danger.
Perhaps the democracy is soon to awaken to the truth that these vast accumulations of debt have their real source in the rule of monarchs and courts, whose jealousies and dynastic ambitions, stimulated by the great military classes always created by them, produce the wars or continual preparation for wars, which eat up the people's substance and add to their burdens year after year. A nation with a large standing army and navy is bound to make wars. One great advantage which the democracy has secured for itself in America is its comparative freedom from debt. The ratio of indebtedness to wealth is strikingly small. Including all debt, municipal, state, and national, it is but four and one-twentieth percent, the national debt alone being less than three and a half percent as compared with eight and three-quarters percent in Britain, eleven and a third percent in France, twenty-two and a quarter percent in Italy, twenty-four and a half percent in Spain, and twenty-five and a half percent in Portugal. This was in 1880. Since then, the reduction of the national debt and the increase of wealth have been so great that it is close upon two percent, not one-fourth of that of Britain, nor one-fifth of that of France. Contrary to the general impression, the debts of the various states which comprise the Union are trifling, being but six-tenths of one percent upon the valuation. Several states have no debt, others have revenues from public lands sufficient to pay the entire expenses of the state government. The municipal debts of the cities of America are likewise very small compared to those of Britain, being only one and two-tenths percent upon the valuation of city property. Taking all the state and city debts of the Union, and rating them according to valuation of property, both combined do not amount to one-fifth of the city debt of Manchester, nor to one-tenth of the debt of Birmingham, while Liverpool owes in proportion to its wealth fifty pounds, two hundred fifty dollars, for every pound, five dollars, owed by the cities of America taken as a whole. If we add to the municipal debts of America, the state, and also the national debt, Liverpool's municipal debt alone is still seven times greater than all of these combined. Even the city of Manchester, which does not rate high as a debtor, owes in its corporate capacity alone in proportion to its wealth, two and a half times as much as the ratio of indebtedness of all American cities, all state debts, and all debts of the national government. The cities of Great Britain owe $765 million, $153 million pounds, those of America, notwithstanding their greater number, population, and wealth, only $575 million, $115 million pounds. If to the American municipal debt we add the debt of all of the states, we have only $865 million, $173 million pounds, for city and state debt as against $765 million, $153 million pounds, in Britain for city debt alone. The following are given by Mulhall. Debt to valuation. Liverpool, 32.5. Manchester, 10. Birmingham, 21.8. Leeds, 15.8. London, which is in debt only 3%, finds a worthy compere in Philadelphia whose debt is even a fraction less. 
New York stands with Manchester at ten and four-tenths. America has no city so deeply involved as Liverpool, Birmingham, or Leeds. But in the case of Liverpool, I am reminded of Artemis Ward, who met in London a gentleman from that city, who told them there were some docks or something which he should have seen. And in regard to Birmingham, no one who has been privileged to examine the work which that model of municipal life is doing will think the debt unwisely incurred. It is evident, however, that with all the push of the American, he is distanced by his illustrious ancestor in the race for debt in his corporate capacity. The Republican has so managed that the annual charge for all debt against him per head is not one-fourth of that which his brother in Britain has incurred. Every Briton owes of national debt $110, 22 pounds. Every Frenchman, $120, 24 pounds. Every Italian, $90, 18 pounds. While the American owes but $30, 6 pounds. Every Canadian owes of public debt alone in proportion to wealth, $6.15, 1 pound, 4 shillings, 6 pence. Every Australian, $16.15, 3 pounds, 4 shillings, 6 pence. While, as we have before seen, the American, with all his resources and rosy expectation, has burdened himself with only $3.49, 14 shillings, and is rapidly paying that off. This is but one more added to the proofs that lie open at all points to anyone who will take the trouble to examine and compare the facts that the masses made equal politically under the sway of democracy are not prone to wild excesses. They have developed in the United States into one of the most conservative communities in the world, conservative of their powerful government, of their Supreme Court, and of their Senate, and of all that makes for the security of civil and religious liberty, of the rights of property, and the constitutional right of each individual to the pursuit of happiness in his own way, subject only to the limitations that he interfere not with the enjoyment of the same right by others. Let the student of American institutions direct his attention to this fact, and see whether the Republic be not a very conservative Republic indeed. Nowhere is so well understood the difference between liberty and license. In 1835, just half a century ago, the Republic was not only free from debt, but had a surplus in the Treasury. How to dispose of this surplus was a matter of grave concern. No wonder, for assuredly there existed no precedent in the history of the world, and statesmen are the slaves of precedent, to throw light upon the novel question, not how a nation can wipe out its debt, that would be hard enough, but how a nation is to get rid of its surplus. Even as late as 1857, only 28 years ago, the debt was but $29 million, not £6 million. Today, the interest-bearing debt is about $1.5 billion, 300 million pounds. My readers may be ready to suggest that in no department has the Republic made greater progress than in running into debt. Only 28 years ago, in debt, 30 millions of dollars, and today 50 times that sum. It is quite as extraordinary as an increase as is seen in her growth of wheat. 
even the growth of the Bessemer steel industry does not much exceed it. And as we have had to award her the prize for rapid development in numerous branches over the motherland, let us hasten to credit the latter with setting an example to her precocious child. For the debt of Britain during the past thirty years has not only not increased, but has been reduced $310 million, 62 million pounds. The explanation of the increased debt of the Republic is, of course, found in the civil conflict between slavery and freedom. The two systems were antagonistic, and the irrepressible issue had to be met sooner or later. Either the equality of the citizen was or was not the foundation of the state, there was no middle ground. It has been decided, but the cost was frightful. That part of it, unpaid at the close of the struggle, which could be represented by dollars, and that much the smaller part, amounted to $2,770,000,000, pounds. Unadjusted claims subsequently paid made the total debt more than $3 billion, $600,000,000 pounds. Thus stood the account in 1866, twenty years ago. The annual interest charge was no less than $146 million, nearly £30 million, being two millions sterling more than that of Britain. Many were the predictions throughout Europe that the masses who held full and unlimited sway would never take such a load upon their shoulders and patiently endure the taxation necessary to carry it, much less pay it off. Much of the debt had been contracted at excessive rates of interest, 6%, and at periods when less than 50% in gold was obtained for the bonds issued. Universal suffrage could never be brought to pay back in gold the par value of such issues. It would require a government of the educated and enlightened few, a monarchy, for instance, to keep its financial honor untarnished. In Britain, such ideas prevailed, especially among financiers. Mr. Gladstone gives them expression in Kin Beyond the Sea. Quote, in twelve years, she, America, has reduced her debt by 158 million pounds, or at the rate of 13 million pounds for each year. In each twelve months, she has done what we did in eight years, her self-command, self-denial, and wise forethought for the future have been, to say the least, eightfold ours. These are facts which redounded greatly to her honor, and the historian will record with surprise that an enfranchised nation tolerated burdens which in this country a selected class, possessed of the representation, did not dare to face, and that the most unmitigated democracy known to the annals of the world resolutely reduced, at its own cost, prospective liabilities of the state which the aristocratic and plutocratic and monarchical government of the United Kingdom had been contented ignobly to hand over to posterity. The financiers of the continent, and especially of Germany, knew the character of democracy better, and profited accordingly. Many fortunes were made by investments in American bonds, which rapidly doubled in value. The most notable case in my own experience was that of an uncle in Scotland who had always, like John Bright, believed in the Republic, and had implicit faith in the American people in general, and perhaps his nephew in particular. 
at the darkest hour of the conflict, when gold was worth nearly three times the value of currency, this staunch friend of the Republic remitted me a considerable sum of money, saying, Invest this for me as you think best, but if you put it in United States bonds it will add to my pleasure, for then I can feel that in her hour of danger I have never lost faith in the Republic. Close quote. Three times the value of his gold when remitted, and double the value of his patriotic investment since, has rewarded his faith in the triumph of democracy. Starting then, twenty years ago, 1866, with three billion dollars, six hundred million pounds, as the national burden, with an annual interest charge of nearly one hundred forty-six million dollars, twenty-nine point two million pounds, what has the democracy done up to the 1st of January, 1885? It has paid more than half of the huge sum and reduced it to less than $1.5 billion, or £300 million. Here is the last monthly statement. Debt, less cash in Treasury, January 1st, 1886, $1,443,000,000. $454,826. Debt less cash and treasury, December 1st, 1885, $1,452,544,766. Decrease of debt during the month, $9,089,940. The interest charge has fallen from $146 million, 29.2 million pounds, to $51 million, 10.2 million pounds. In two successive years of this period, the reduction amounted to $270 million, 54 million pounds, but this rate being considered too rapid, taxes were repealed and large sums voted for increased pensions to the sailors and soldiers who crushed the rebellion. The American has to continue for only 12 years more to reduce the national debt as he has for the past 20 years in order to wipe it out entirely. It may confidently be predicted that ere the close of this century, extraordinary events accepted, the last bond of the Republic will be publicly burned at Washington with imposing ceremonies, amidst the universal rejoicings of the people. The democracy seems destined to set an example in many ways to the monarchies of the world, not the least important being that of a people resolutely pursuing the policy of reducing its debt until the last dollar is paid, that its resources may remain unimpaired to meet the emergencies which may arise to affect its position among the nations. Where is the monarchy which can vie with this democracy in conservative finance or thoughtful care for its country's future? Mr. Gladstone says the parent land ignobly hands her debt over to posterity. From a position so discredited that 6% bonds did not net more than half their par value in gold, the government of the people has risen in the estimation of the capitalists of the world to so high a point that its bonds bearing only 3% command a premium. What the world thinks of democracy is this. 
that beyond the credit of any nation, even higher than that of Great Britain, stands the obligations of a government founded upon the equality of the citizen. A leading liberal cabinet minister, not Mr. Gladstone, not Mr. Chamberlain, for they know America not much but a little better, once asked me whether, in a contingency which then threatened to arise in the Republic, namely a contested presidential election, and which did indeed arise and passed away harmlessly, there would not be a revolution which would involve the stability of our institutions. My reply was, have you noticed today's quotations of American three percents? No, he said. What are they? Higher than yours, I said, and looked straight at him. That was all, but it was sufficient. Whenever a man, even a liberal cabinet minister, begins to doubt the stability of a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, and there are liberal cabinet ministers whose faith in the democracy is as a grain of mustard seed, ask him why the credit of this new democracy stands before that of the old monarchy. Why would the world lend this democracy more money and upon better terms than it would lend the best government of the few? Why does the world pay for American three percents more than it will pay for the British three percents? The answer is obvious. Because the reign of the whole of the people of a state is more secure than the reign of any class in a state can possibly be. A class may be upset, nay, is sure to be sooner or later. The people are forever and ever in power. The Revenues of the Government It was often said, up to the breaking out of the slaveholders' rebellion in 1861, that the American did not know that he had a national government. Certainly, as far as taxation was concerned, he had little to remind him of the fact. In 1830, the total revenues collected were not quite two dollars per head, eight shillings. In 1840, they had fallen below one dollar twenty-five cents, five shillings. And even as late as 1860, twenty-five years ago, the American enjoyed all the blessings of government at a cost of one dollar seventy-five cents, seven shillings, per annum. This was collected principally from customs and sales of public lands. There was no such thing known as an excise or internal tax, so that the citizen never was visited by a revenue officer of any kind. The American was born, lived, and died, and was never asked to contribute assent to his government. Unless he lived at a seaport and visited the custom house, he probably never saw a man whose duty it was to collect a national tax. In this blessed year of 1860, the total national revenue was only $56 million, 11.2 million pounds. In 1866, it reached its maximum, or $558 million, 111.6 million pounds. After 1860, war taxes were necessary, and the Republican became aware of the fact, well known everywhere else, that it costs money to wage war. 
internal and excise taxes were resorted to and the citizen made the acquaintance of the revenue officer in full force for the first time his revenues were made subject to an income tax fairest of all taxes in theory most odious of all in practice it was however a graduated income tax which exempted the masses but exacted five per cent upon the largest incomes during the six years from eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty seven enormous sums from four hundred to five hundred million dollars eighty million pounds to one hundred million pounds were raised by taxes by the general government the republican might have fancied himself enjoying for a time the blessings of the british monarchy for the taxation was about equal each nation drawing about four hundred million dollars eighty million pounds per annum from its people with the collapse of the rebellion the republic began to set its finances in order taxes were rapidly reduced and among the first to go was the income tax then followed the reduction or repeal of one internal tax after another till finally today with the exception of the taxes on whiskey and tobacco producing in the aggregate one hundred forty five million dollars twenty nine million pounds but few of a trifling character remain with these exceptions the republican knows nothing of internal taxation his acquaintance with the revenue officer has almost ceased once more he is free he has neither income tax nor legacy duty end of chapter nineteen part one